Matthew twelve forty six through 50. As Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and brothers stood outside, asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. Jesus asked, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he pointed to his disciples and said, look, these are my mother and my brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. All right. Who's is this like anyone's favorite passage? No? Okay. All right. Didn't think so. Uh, growing up in church, I heard a lot of advice about what to look for in a spouse. Some of it uh, was better than others. And one piece of advice that I think was particularly good was often directed at women, and it went like this How a man treats his mother will tell you everything you need to know. The implication of this advice is, of course, that the way in which a man treats his mom is a pretty good indicator of how he will eventually treat his wife. If he is a loving, respectful, and compassionate son, then he will likely be a loving, respectful, and compassionate husband. But if he is harsh, disrespectful, and dismissive as a son, then he will likely be harsh, disrespectful, and dismissive as a husband, has anyone heard that before? No? Yeah. Yeah. Some of us, some of us have heard it. It's good advice. Makes sense why Jesus never got married, right? Okay, he's pretty harsh to his mother in this story, if you were listening. Um, but that's not why I share this. I share this, well, I don't share it for the advice, though it's good advice for, for anyone out there who's needs it. But I share this because I do want to highlight just how shocking Jesus' words are in this story. His dismissiveness towards his own family as they attempt to speak with him is off-putting and seems unnecessarily rude. How would you feel if my mom were to walk into this room and I were to treat her in that way? You probably wouldn't think very well of me. You'd have to assume that she had something pretty important to say for her to come all the way from Chicago just to talk to me. But what if I were to just dismiss her? to send her away, to say, who is my mother? These people in this room are my mother and my brothers. This is no way to treat your family. This is no way to treat the people who raised you, but that's exactly what Jesus does. To compound the issue, Jesus grew up in a highly family-centric culture. Everything revolved around the biological family. And there was no bond that was stronger than the bond between blood relatives. Even the marital bond would take a back seat to the biological family, to the family of origin, meaning that if there was some sort of disagreement or conflict between your spouse and your blood relatives, well, I know some of you are just home for Christmas, this might hit close to home, but if there's some disagreement between your spouse and your biological relatives, then your loyalty better lie with your blood relatives. Meaning if your wife and your mom are getting into it, the cultural expectation is that you would side with your mom. How's that going to go over today? Not super well, right? It's not how we do things. But this is how they did did things back then. Family comes first. In Jesus' time, there was no responsibility, no loyalty greater than one's loyalty to their biological family. And there was no offense greater than to turn your back on that family. In that cultural context, Jesus' words 
are scandalous. They're scandalous. So what is Jesus doing here? Is he losing his temper? Is he frustrated with his mother and brothers for interrupting him? Is he going through a rebellious phase? Or is he doing something different? I think Jesus is doing something very intentional here. I think he's making a point that we, that we need to understand. Otherwise, I don't think they would have included it uh, in, the, in the Gospels here. So let's take a look, closer look at Matthew chapter 12. And as we work through this passage, we're going to answer two questions. Number one, what is Jesus rejecting? And number two, what is Jesus claiming? Okay, what is he rejecting? What is he claiming? So the first is, what is Jesus rejecting? We're going to read this, or at least the first part again. Verse 46, as Jesus was speaking to the crowd, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Someone told Jesus, your mother and your brothers are standing outside and they want to speak to you. So why might Jesus' family be asking to speak to him? Well, we know that Jesus was the eldest son of the family. And though we don't know how or when, most scholars believe that his father, Joseph, died when Jesus was young. This would make Jesus the patriarch of the family. It's his responsibility to fill the role of his father, to make big decisions for the family, to solve problems as they arise. So it's likely that something is going on in the family that is important and urgent. And since Jesus is off traveling around with his disciples, his family comes and finds him. And they want to know, are you going to fulfill your responsibilities to this family or not? Well, what is Jesus' response? He says in verse 48, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Then he points to his disciples and he says, Look, these are my mother and my brothers. Anyone who does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And I've already drawn attention to this, but let's just consider the outrageousness of Jesus' words here. He could have at least taken them aside privately and explain the situation to them. Hey, you know, I know I'm supposed to uh, uh, help this family, but this whole Messiah thing is really taking a lot of my time. Like, maybe you could just figure this out without me, right? He could have done that, but he doesn't. Instead, he, he publicly uh, disowns them. He says, these are not my mothers and my brothers. These people in this room are my mothers and my brothers, He does about the most offensive thing that he could do. He publicly denies any responsibility, any allegiance to his family. Who are these people? This woman isn't my mother. These are my brothers. This is offensive in our time, but it's unthinkable in Jesus' time. This is just about the worst thing that you could do in a family-centric culture like first century Israel. Joseph Hellerman, author of the book, When the Church Was a Family, writes this, he says, these words were utterly scandalous in the cultural context in which Jesus lived. In the social world of Jewish Palestine, Jesus, as the oldest surviving male in the family, was responsible to defend the honor of and provide leadership for his patrilineal kinship group. In a single stroke, Jesus dishonored himself and his family by refusing to exercise that crucial role, and he did so in a public setting. This is not just some impulsive response. This is not some outburst against his family. This is very intentional, what Jesus is doing. 
He is, tr- he is trying to shock us. He, is, he wants to provoke our emotions so that we pay attention to what he is saying. So our first question was, what is Jesus rejecting? He is rejecting that he has any allegiance to his biological family. Our second question is, what is Jesus claiming? You see, Jesus is not just rejecting his cultural responsibility for the sake of rejecting it. Jesus is making a point. He's making a radical claim about the community that he is creating. And he's going after what they hold most dearly in order to do it. So what is Jesus claiming? Let's look back at our passage. Jesus takes the titles associated with his blood relatives, and he offers them to his disciples. Okay, these are my mother and my brothers. Anyone who does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, Jesus is, is, is Jesus saying that his disciple John, for example, is now his mother? Is he saying that uh, Matthew and Luke are somehow his blood siblings? No, of course not, right? Jesus is not making a biological claim. He's making a claim of allegiance. By placing these titles onto his disciples, he is communicating that his allegiance and his responsibility is no longer to his biological family. Instead, it now belongs to this community. His primary loyalty, his primary identity now lies with this community that he has brought together around his kingdom. This is his new family. Author and theologian N.T. Wright writes that the only explanation for Jesus' astonishing words is that he envisioned loyalty to himself and his kingdom movement as creating an alternative family. Jesus is establishing a new family with all the expectations and commitments that come with it. And this family is made up not of his blood relatives, but of people who are committed to spreading his kingdom throughout the world. Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, a quick note, Jesus' Jesus's blood relatives are not excluded from this new family. The reality is that Jesus has made available to them something that is far better than what he took away. Look at chapter, uh, John chapter 19, just real quickly. In this passage, in John chapter 19, Jesus, he's on the brink of death on the cross. All his followers and, and most of his family have left him. But who still stands by his side? It's his mother, right? And one disciple, the disciple John. And and John writes in chapter 19, verse 26 and 27, when Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. This is not just some sweet sentiment. Jesus means this wholeheartedly. And we have to assume at this point that Mary and John understand the seriousness of this arrangement. This is life-saving for Jesus' mother, who would be left without her son and without her husband. Yet because of Jesus' new family, she now has countless children who will never die off. She will never be left alone and destitute because she has a new family. 
So what does this mean for us today? Well, this is, this is a radical, this radical claim that Jesus makes becomes a bedrock conviction of the early church. Paul and, and other New Testament writers constantly use family imagery and family language to talk about the church. The church is family. And Jesus' vision for his church is that we would relate to one another like a first century Israelite relates to their biological family. That above all, our allegiance would be to this new family. That's Jesus' vision for his church. And there's a challenge for us to, to understand the implications of what Jesus is saying because there is a stark difference between the collectivist culture of the first century Israel and our radically individualistic culture today. We live in the most individualistic culture that's ever existed. And in an individualistic culture, my loyalties and my responsibilities lie first with what is best for me and my future. And any participation in groups or communities serve that primary loyalty to my individual well-being. In contrast, Jesus' culture, like most other cultures in the world, is a collectivist culture. In this culture, the group comes first. My loyalty lies with my community and the individual exists to serve the community. And as we have said in Jesus' time, first century Israel, the most important community was family, the biological family. Now, so this is not how most of us think in this collective, collectivist, family-first mindset. Even, even those of us who deeply value community or deeply value our family, and we might even criticize individualism, we don't actually have a collectivist or group-first mindset. And here's how we know this. For those of us who are married... Or, or hope to be married someday. Most of us probably never considered what would be best for our family when choosing a spouse. We chose who we wanted to marry. In a collectivist culture, marriage is not primarily about what you want, but what is best for the family. A different mindset. Most of us didn't consider what would be best for our blood relatives when we chose where we would live. Just ask all those of us who have mothers that live in other states. Okay, we didn't check what would be best for her. Okay, we did what we wanted. We did what would be best for us. Most of us didn't consider what would benefit the community when we chose our career. Instead, we asked, what, what do I want to do? What am I good at? What am I passionate about? Most of us didn't consider what would be best for the community when planning out our year or making New Year's resolutions. Those things may benefit the community tang tangentially, but we typically ask things like, what do I want my year to look like? How do I want to better myself in this year? We typically make decisions based on what is best for ourselves, not because we are selfish, but because we have been told our whole lives that the individual comes first. Instead, Jesus takes the collective, um, I'm sorry, the individual comes first. In Jesus' culture, everything is decided based on what is best for the family. What is best for the family, not the individual. Family comes first, and the individual exists to serve the family. So Jesus has something to say about both cultures. He is rejecting his own cultural norm of, of family first, 
but not in order to establish a culture where the individual comes first. Instead, he takes the collectivist mindset and he applies it not to his biological family, but to his disciples, to the community of people gathered around his mission. This is the new family. And all my decisions will be made based on what is best for them. My life will be oriented around what is good for them. This was a scandalous claim then, and it's a scandalous claim now. Because most of us don't think this way about this community. So let's just do some some more self-reflection. How many of us consider what is best for this community when making our everyday decisions? How many of us consider what would be best for the people in this room when we plan out our week or our month? How many of us regularly sacrifice what is good and desirable for ourselves for the sake of this community? I'm not trying to be critical. I think this community is actually pretty loving and we we care pretty well for one another. But the reality is that this is just not how we've been trained to think. It just doesn't come to our mind in our everyday lives when we're making decisions and and doing things about what would be best for the community that we belong to. And most people, it's it's it goes even further. We 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 pick a church based on what we can get out of it. We start asking questions about the individual. So and, and if we're not getting what we need, then we just leave. Jesus is saying that our question should not be, what can I get, but what can I give to this community? Not what do I need, but what does my faith community need from me? Not what is best for me, but what is best for this community? Okay, this, these are the sorts of questions that Jesus and his disciples would have been asking. This is what he's saying when he calls his disciples family. If we are to internalize these words of Jesus and start to think this way, it would radically change how we engage with our church community. Every single one of us, it would change. So we're going to spend, as I mentioned, we're starting this new series. We're going to spend quite a bit of time talking about Jesus's vision for community. And and as, as we go through this for the next few months or so, um, my encouragement to you is this. Prioritize this community in a way that you haven't before. Go above and beyond what you would normally do in order to do what's good uh, for this community, for the people in this room. When planning your week or your weekend, ask, what does my community need? What sacrifices can I make for this community? Things like prioritizing time spent with people in this community, sharing meals together, going on walks together, meeting for coffee. Give above and beyond what you normally would give of your time and your resources. Pray for the people in this room every day. Encourage one another. However God compels you to do this, give yourself to this community. And so I encourage you to press into that. And at the end of this series as we go through community and discuss all these things that Jesus is going to say about community, if it wasn't worth it, which it might not be, you can go back to the way things were. Okay, No judgment, no hard feelings. It's okay. You can still come hang out, and and who knows? Maybe we'll all go back to the way things were. But I just wonder, what would happen if we really took this seriously for the next three months? If we really went all in and started to put community above all else? 
in our lives and, and really tried to follow the words of Jesus. So we're going to walk through this together. Every gathering, there's going to be takeaways and things that we can do differently. So if this seems like a big thing and how do I even start, that's okay. All right, we're going to jump in next time. We're going to talk about this picture behind the word community. It's going to be really exciting, so make sure you come for that um, because that is meaningful, it's significant. Um, but, but yeah, I just encourage you, let's, let's take this seriously, what Jesus has to say, because I think he has something really special for us. And I think we'll miss out if we don't take it seriously. So let me pray for us. We're going to go into a time of worship. Brian and Kirk, you can come on up here. Father, I just want to take a moment and thank you for this community, God. Thank you for bringing us together from all walks of life to come together under the name of Jesus. And I pray that as we go on this journey together for the next few months, talking about community and and Jesus's vision for community, I pray that you challenge us, that you encourage us, and that we find uh, a treasure that we never knew was available to us. I truly believe, God, that you want to do something awesome in our midst. And I believe that these words of Jesus that we'll be looking at together hold the key um, to something really special that you you desire for us. I pray, God, um, that as we leave this place, as we worship together and, and share a meal and then leave this place, that we would feel just a little bit more closely bonded to one another, that we would begin to believe uh, what you tell us, that we are a family. just share for a second, uh, and then I'll open the, the communion table. Um, Matthew 26, uh, 26, 28. Now, as they are eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he gave thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many uh, for many, for the forgiveness of sins. And um, I don't know about many of you all, that and the First Corinthians or those kinds of verses, uh, for me, were, were many of the verses that were always read growing up, uh, when growing up in church. I grew up in a very traditional church, and when we came around the table, um, it was a very, um, very different from what we do uh, tonight, and and I'm thankful for kind of the reverence and reserved. I just remember we were sitting in the pews. There was the big table up front that said, "Do this in remembrance of me," and they brought out the big silver platters, and it was always covered with a blanket or white sheet or something. It was very reverent, very controlled, very liturgical um, type of experience, and I appreciate that because it it created a reverence for communion, the Last Supper, or that kind of thing. But I can also remember several years ago when Heather and I were, were youth leaders um, at a church up the street, still a very traditional type church, but we had a youth pastor that um, did... Maybe, I, I don't know, it probably wasn't a more biblical communion or anything like that. But um, 
in the Matthew 26 verses, uh, he says, as they were eating, now as they were eating, they took the bread and they took the cup. And that's what we did. We sat around a table and we shared a meal. And in the middle of that meal, he took out bread and he took out the cup and we shared communion around the table that way. And that gave me a new uh, perspective and a, a very different look where Growing up in in the very traditional church, it was a very controlled, reverent, reserved experience. What I remember about sitting around that table um, was much more communal. It was much. It, it was warm. It was welcoming. Um, there was a little bit of chaos to it, probably like much of our tables around Thanksgiving and and Christmas. There was a little chaos to it, but. The fact was we weren't sitting in rows. We were around tables like this. We were in community like this. So as um, I pray and open the table, uh, just take a few minutes to think about um, coming around the table uh, as this community. Um, it can, It is warm. It is welcoming. It can be a little chaotic at times because we've got... A hundred kids to about a hundred adults of us, you know, it's one to one feels like sometimes, but um, but that's okay um, because in that chaos um, comes more of that community and uh, putting our arms around each other in that way as well. So um, I'll pray and I'll open the table and we invite you to um, to communion today, Father. We we thank you for uh, today and I do thank you. I thank you for. Um, just the foundations of uh, in coming around the table in a in a more reserved and more reverent place, and just the respect that that created in me. But I also, um, as we come around the table in a more communal way, in a um, more open way, uh, I am thankful for that as well. And Father, we are thankful for what this table represents, as um, your body and your blood was spilt for us. Lord, we love you. We ask things in your name. Amen.